Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is on high yield and leverage loans. I'm James Pegum, head of our global insurance solutions business, and with me today are two colleagues, Jim Shanahan and Tom Hauser, both senior portfolio managers in our high yield fixed income business at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to J.P. Morgan Insights. Thank you. Thank you, James. Glad to be here. So before we get into it, let's just take a look at the last 15 years of asset class performance. And I have in front of me our guide to the markets, and I'm on page 61 of the U.S. version. And I'm looking at asset class returns from 2000 to 2015. We see high yield at 7.9% annualized return with an annualized vol of 11.5%. That's the second highest behind REITs at 12% and 22% annualized vol. At this point, it may be helpful to distinguish between the characteristics of a high-yield bond and a leveraged loan. Jim, would you like to take us through that? Well, high-yield bonds are below-investment-grade corporate bonds that is rated below triple B- or BAA3. They are generally fixed-rate, unsecured obligations of the issuer, generally issued in terms of 5 to 10 years, and typically are callable at a premium to par about halfway through the life of the bond. Contrast that to leverage loans, which are generally senior secured floating rate obligations that are a first priority claim against the company's assets, but are floating rate and generally have little or no call protection at the time they're issued. Historically, high yield bonds have an intermediate correlation to equities about 0.6 or 0.7, and typically a very low or even negative correlation to U.S. Treasuries and other investment grade fixed income. Great. Thank you. All right. Let's look at year-to-date performance because it's really bounced back. It's in the teens. So, Jim, what's going on there? Were you expecting this? Frankly, no. After a very weak 2015 and second half of 2014, we felt that high yield was oversold by the end of 2015. But the strength of the returns in the market this year have surprised us. We've seen, you know, the major indices like the Merrill Master II up on a year-to-day basis through the end of August at, call it, 14.5%. While we were thinking we might have a very good year in high yield this year, we certainly weren't thinking about returns that were that strong. Yeah, I think at the beginning of the year, most strategists out there had, you know, I think a couple of them actually had negative returns. You know, they really were looking for a continuation of what we saw in the back half of 14 and continued commodity pressure throughout 15. And so, you know, I think that was a surprise. You know, some of the most optimistic estimates out there were for higher single digit type returns. And so really what we've seen this year is once you had a stabilization in China, I think there were fears of a global recession out there that started to abate. And, you know, once that happened, you saw stabilization in commodity prices and energy. You really saw an unwind of what happened in 15. And so performance this year has really been led by triple C's, which had underperformed quite a bit as well as the metals mining and energy space. Yeah, and I think another interesting contributor, Tom, to this year's performance, and something that's made benchmark performance hard for managers to match, has been the outsized contribution of fallen angels in the energy and mining space. You had a big wave of downgrades, you know, names like Freeport, MacMoran in the mining space, large issuers that were downgraded by the rating agencies in February, came into the benchmark in the beginning of March, and then right into the teeth of the rally and have performed enormously 
well this year, contributing more than 100 basis points of the uh, return of the market. And the timing and speed of that move made it hard for managers to capture all of it in their portfolios. And they were hard to buy. Yeah, as you pointed out, the index got a full fill on day one in the benchmark, and those issues were extremely difficult to buy in the secondary market. You know, $40 billion came into the benchmark on March 1st, but there wasn't $40 billion for sale on March 1st. And hard as we were all working to buy it, you simply couldn't keep up with how fast they were moving in the market. If you look at energy and commodities after a breathtaking fall in 2014, and frankly through February 11th of this year, you've had an unbelievable rally in both the energy and mining space. And it seemed to be in response to coordinated central bank and policy action, particularly out of China, but also the other central banks responding with very dovish or increasing accommodation. So, Tom, with this background, where do you think we are in the cycle? You know, our base case is still for continuation of slow growth. That's really where we've been post-crisis. That's been, you know, one and a half to two and a half percent growth, which has been constructive for credit. That has been good for investment grade. It's been good for high yield. It's been good for loans. And what we've seen is company behavior that's been pretty conservative post-crisis. And so I think when you take that conservative behavior and you combine that with accommodative central banks, zero rates, you're going to get an extended credit cycle. And so this is one we've not seen before. Usually at this late in an expansion, you would see more aggressive company behavior. You would see more lower quality issuance. You would see more aggressive LBO activity. And we just haven't seen it. So I I think we're in a different, unique credit cycle where we're not seeing quite the boom and bust that we've historically seen. I agree, Tom. When you look at what's happened in the marketplace, It's this sort of slow and erratic growth that we've had since the financial crisis of 2008 has been just enough to keep credit momentum positive, you know, to keep balance sheets and income statements reasonably healthy for issuers in the marketplace. But we haven't had that sort of consistently strong growth that makes markets and equity sponsors feel optimistic enough to do transactions that in hindsight look foolish. You know, we've seen that at the end of every cycle in my 30-year career up to this one, but this is different. I mean, you've commented before on the very low percentage of triple C, you know, the lowest rating category for new issuance, the very low percentage of triple C issuance that we're seeing in this market. Yeah, I think it's as low as we've had in probably the last 10 or 15 years for sure, which is not typical of what you would see at this part of the cycle. And so that's why I think you can see it continue. It's interesting that when you look at what's performed very well in high yield since 2009, the place to be has been long duration double B bonds. Typically in an expansionary cycle, it pays you consistently to go down in credit quality, you know, to go to single B and triple C and hold those positions until very late in the cycle and then unwind them. And in this cycle, because of the nature of the growth and the impact of the zero interest rate policy, double Bs have generally outperformed the rest of the market since 2010. And that really is different than other expansions that we've had. Yeah. And the other thing low rates have done is they've absolutely enabled companies to refinance at lower borrowing costs. 
their interest coverage ratios enable them to service their debt much easier than we've seen. And so that's another phenomenon that's adding to cash generation for these companies and why you've seen balance sheet improvement or at least stabilization over the last several years. And so, you know, when you hear, when you talk to companies, you get a lot of things are okay, things are good, not great. And as I said, that combined with low rates has been very, very constructive for credit. Yeah, things are good, but not great. Managers don't do so many foolish things. But that has been good for credit. And I think if you overlay what we've seen in the marketplace in terms of risk management in the market, it also makes me feel like the low default experience that we've had outside the commodity space is likely to continue. Jim, earlier you said that since February, the market has bounced back. And just following on from that default comment, what are your expectations going forward for defaults? Well, we think defaults are going to remain fairly high in the near term as the remainder of the correction, particularly in the energy market, takes place. In the period of 2010 or 11 through mid-2014, you had a huge wave of issuance in E&P and some energy service companies, people that were coming in and buying properties that had been marginal or undervalued previously, applying the fracking and other new technologies into those fields in an environment of very high oil prices. And with the slide in oil prices that started in mid-2014, you're seeing some of those marginal credits have defaulted. And we expect that there's a number of them that are yet to default and are likely to keep the default rate elevated in the near term. But that default rate is incredibly concentrated in the commodity space. X commodities, Tom, I think we're seeing defaults in the, you know, 100, 150 basis point range. Yeah. You know, I think a surprise, at least, is how low the default rate has really been over the last, you know, five to seven years. And the recent spike, as Jim said, is 90% of that has been commodity related. It's been energy, it's been coal. And so away from that, the default rate has been very low. And our expectation is that that will continue. You know, half of the stress out there is still commodity related. If you look at the distress debt ratio, you know, the bonds that are trading below 50 cents on the dollar, half of that is still commodity related. And then away from that, you still have some of the the older vintage LBOs that have subordinated debt. And the one aspect we've seen is the slow growth we've had has been good for a lot of companies, but there is a subset of companies that have just not been able to grow into cap structure. And so I expect they will do exchanges and some sort of restructurings over the next year or two. But away from that, yeah, the default rate is low and is expected to stay, you know, really below average. Yeah, that very, that slow growth you refer to has made it tough for a lot of the more leveraged companies to grow into the balance sheets, which is the expectation that some equity sponsors have when they do their deals. And we just haven't seen the kind of tailwind that's going to let that happen. So eventually we will see those default, but that's really a very slow motion, prolonged process. And we don't see a lot of near-term default candidates there. No, and that will not be a surprise to the market based on where they're trading. And as Jim said, that's fairly telegraphed out there. Jim, can you talk to us about trends and issuance in the high-yield market? Sure. In terms of new issuance, this cycle generally has seen a trend as we've gone through it of relatively high-quality issuance dominating the new issue market calendars and also a higher-than-normal percentage of refinancing because every bond that's become callable pretty much in this environment became callable in a period where interest rates were lower than the times when the bonds were issued. 
So the focus generally has been better quality, bigger companies doing refinancing to reduce the cost of debt financing at the companies. And that's credit positive. I mean, one of the things that we've seen in this cycle is companies have been able to meaningfully reduce the cost of their debt, improve their debt service coverage ratios, and provide themselves a little extra cushion for the relative weakness that we've seen in the general economic environment. So new issue has generally been positive for the marketplace, and we haven't seen that end-of-cycle boom in LBO, very highly levered LBO financing that we've seen at the top of prior cycles. No, and I would add, you know, investors have certainly been more disciplined. Underwriting standards have been tighter. As Jim said, we're not underwriting that type of deal right now. And the regulatory environment has helped some of that in terms of just leverage on deals. But we certainly, as I said, triple C issuance is as low as it's been in the last 10 or 15 years, which is surprising. The demand for deals for these higher quality single B, double B deals has been substantial. Most of these deals are highly oversubscribed. You know, allocations have been cut back. And so there still is a lot of demand for issuance. It just needs to be the right type of issuance. And that has generally been kind of mid-upper quality this year. Jim, could you tell us a little bit more about liquidity in the market and what you're seeing in these trends? This is a question that we're getting a lot from investors these days because there's been a lot of press coverage about the decline in the size of the investment bank and dealer balance sheet that is servicing the debt markets generally and high yield and other corporate bonds specifically. I will say that what we've seen in it is really something of a two-edged sword. First, we have seen greater short-term volatility in the marketplace. The day-to-day movement in the market is a little more violent than it would have been historically. On the other hand, for big, sophisticated buyers like the teams at J.P. Morgan, we've seen this create an interesting opportunity because historically, the competition for an attractive block of bonds was a Goldman or a Citigroup who would come in and bid wholesale to then market up and sell at retail. And that's when they could put their balance sheet to work in these markets. Today, they can't put their balance sheet to work. So what happens is if there's a big block of bonds available, big buyers like us get a chance to look at it and the opportunity to buy at that wholesale level, which frankly, I think probably counterbalances from our perspective the negative of greater short-term volatility. It is. Yeah. Volumes are higher than they've ever been. I think the size of the market has grown relative to the dealers. And so I think that makes it feel less liquid sometimes for some of the smaller issuers. But, you know, the top 100 to 200 issuers trade every day. The ETFs have certainly helped with price discovery on a lot of those more liquid names. I think it's something we've been dealing with for a while. And I think it's here to stay. I've noticed, Tom, is we've tried to move through the markets. And this is, we've seen time where the market felt harder to buy than to sell and times when it was harder to sell than to buy. But we've never had a problem raising the cash that we needed to raise for client flows or to put money to work and move the portfolios when we needed to do that. So I think the liquidity challenge, frankly, has been a bit overstated, I really think it's manifested in greater short-term volatility rather than a challenge to liquidity. And so, Tom, off the back of that, do you have any comments around valuations? 
Sure. You know, obviously we've moved a couple hundred basis points tighter this year, both in terms of yields and spreads. Yields started the year just inside of 9%. We currently sit around six and a quarter. Spreads were wide of 700, and right now we're wide of 500. So we've had a substantial move. There was a lot of uncertainty priced into the market, I think, at the beginning of the year, and you were certainly paid to take that risk at the time. As we've moved tighter, we've been de-risking a little bit in portfolios opportunistically, more on valuation in those certain names. But, you know, I think the market is still attractive relative to the competitive set out there. You know, if you look across asset classes, high yields still getting you north of 500 spreads. We've talked about fundamentals being healthy, default rates remaining in check. And so I think high yield is still one of the few places that offer yield out there. And so... It's not as cheap as it was. There certainly is less cushion for surprise now. But I think if you think about spreads and yields in that context right now, we still think it's fair to attractive on a relative basis and certainly in the context of expected defaults right now. I agree with that. I mean, if you look at the sort of single B and double B part of the market to take some of the triple C tail effect, you're getting spreads north of 400 in a sector of the market where you probably are looking at defaults. Uh, sub 2% and credit loss less than 1% as you look forward, giving you probably north of 300 or 325 basis points of excess spread, which is about the market's long-term average. So the market feels reasonably valued. We certainly aren't pounding the table saying it's cheap, but nor would we advise people to get out of the market at this point based on valuations. It feels like reasonable compensation for the credit risk you're taking. And we continue to see demand. Obviously, retail flows have been north of $10 billion this year. You know, Away from that, we've seen pensions, insurance allocations increase. There is a need to fund liabilities out there. And as I said, high yield is one of the few places to get yield right now. I would also add that high yield as an asset class is still a core holding for most absolute return strategic income products because it's the only place to get meaningful income. And I think as you canvas the universe of fixed income alternatives or even equity alternatives, high yield still stacks up well. I think you make an interesting point, Tom. We certainly have seen an expansion in the investor base in high yield in response to global zero interest rate policies. You are seeing that the traditional buyers in the marketplace are still there with their full allocations, but you've also seen an expansion of the buyer universe. And it really becomes evident when you start looking at absolute returns and all multi-sector opportunistic bond funds, all of which have meaningful allocations to high yield and have been an asset class that has grown significantly in the last couple of years. Let's talk about that growth because both loans and high yield are now probably over a trillion, I think high yield a trillion three or four. How has that developed over the last decade or so? Yeah, it's grown dramatically. And I think if you go back 10 years, that the high yield asset class was about a half a trillion. So it's almost tripled in the last 10 years. And it's obviously that pricing transparency has improved markedly. Bid offer spreads have tightened. These are much larger household names that make up the high yield market today relative to what it was 10 or 15 years ago. I think that's one of the reasons we've seen high yield become more of a core holding and a strategic allocation for clients as opposed to something more tactical. What we see now is there's a core allocation and they will move that up and down based on relative value and their alternatives. 
Whereas before they may have had a zero weighting and when spreads look cheap, they would move into the market and then they would move back out. We definitely see as the market has grown, it is much more of a core part of portfolios. And you make a very important point when you talk about the growth in the size of the issuers in the market and in the number of household names that are in the marketplace today. This has really gone from being a micro cap debt financing market with sort of niche industrial companies to a place where very large companies that the public would recognize go for their debt financing because it offers them the most attractive balance of cost and flexibility as they manage their balance sheets. So the the growth in the market is driven more by the growth in the size of the issuers than it has been by the growth of the number of issuers, although we clearly have seen a significant growth in the number of issuers in the market also. Tom and Jim, thanks very much for being on JP Morgan Insights. Yes, thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I'm James Pegum. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. The views contained herein are not to be taken as an advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given, and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks, the value of investments, and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield may not be a reliable guide to future performance. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other EU jurisdictions by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe SARL. In Hong Kong by J.F. Asset Management Limited or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In India, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management India Private Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trust Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. 
in Australia to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, in Brazil by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada for institutional clients' use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, and in the United States by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, both members of FINRA SIPC and J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2016, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved. Recorded September the 8th, 2016.